just one clarifier, clarifier that I want to give is we got a lot of questions about from the women who feel like they really identified with Zach's talk last night and with the fear of futility and the desire to do something of lasting significance. And I'm curious, and I think that there will probably be guys in here who really identify with what I share about femininity. And I would just say that um, that actually makes a lot of sense, and I think that's right, because like we said yesterday, we believe that both men and women are created in the image of God, and we don't think that men and women are opposite of each other. We think that they're actually complements of each other, and so it actually makes a lot of sense that you would identify with a lot of the masculinity talk. And it actually probably would have been bad if as a woman you were sitting in the talk last night and you couldn't identify with a single thing that Zach was saying, because a lot of what Zach was saying relates to just what it means to be human. And we do think that there are unique struggles and unique lies and unique um, desires that men and women have, but we also think that there's a ton of overlap. And so don't be freaked out if you're like, wait, I want to make lasting significance. Like, <laughs> what does that mean? Um, because there's so much room for, for femininity and masculinity to overlap. Um, but I want to start out with a clip. Um, this is from the movie Finding Nemo. It's Nemo's first day of school. Oh, who is this? Oh, who is this? I'm Nemo. Well, Nemo, all new explorers must answer a science question. Okay. You live in what kind of home? Uh, I felt that way a little bit when I tried to say femininity. <laughs> so if you, like me, have struggled to say the word femininity, that's okay, welcome aboard. We're jumping on the stingrays back and we are gonna dive into this. So the thing I'm trying to answer tonight is what does femininity uniquely reveal about God and his character? And Zach and I wrote a book that um, I would recommend. It's called Fully Alive by Larry Crabb. And in it, this is a quote he said that I thought was super helpful. He said, womanhood must never be defined in a frivolous way that makes it necessarily unfeminine to be fully competent and highly respected as a physician, corporate executive, or biblical scholar. Nor should femininity be somehow essentially connected to cooking, sensual clothing, or a sweet, subservient demeanor. Womanhood, like manhood, has more to do with a woman's attitude towards herself and others as she involves herself in relationships. So that's kind of what I hope would set the tone for this talk tonight. I'm not going to be really giving you practical things like 10 ways to know if you're a woman or not um, because I think that that's really unhelpful. And I think when it's done before, what happens is that women can feel really boxed in and it feels like there's some women who are doing femininity really well and there's some women who aren't doing it well. And my goal in this talk is that as a woman, you would walk away from this talk recognizing how God has uniquely made you and what it means for you to live out of your femininity given the way he's made you, given the interest that he's already given you. And so with that, I'm gonna pray and then we'll dive in. So Father, we come to you tonight wanting to better understand your purpose and your design in creating women. We recognize that you have you have done this you have created men and women and that this is a good thing and that out of it arise a lot of hurt a lot of pain a lot of conflict and confusion but also out of it can arise so much life and beauty and goodness and so i pray that your spirit would 
come, that you would fill my words, that if there's anything I say tonight that wouldn't be helpful, that you would not let it stick in people's minds. I pray that there would be things that would feel like really freeing to hear. And God, I pray that after this week that there would be more freedom in friendships between women, in friendships between men, in friendships between men and women, in the ways that women relate to you as, a, as their father. And so, God, I ask all these things. We, we are helpless without your spirit, and so I need him to now come and help me. So I ask these things in your name. Amen. Um, I have one more clarifier to give, and, and that's that as Zach was giving his talk last night, I kind of started freaking out just a little bit because his talk is, was very clear, very concise. He had some really great kind of one-liners about what it means to be a man. And the reason why I started freaking out is because my notes on femininity were very much not that way. They're kind of all over the place. Uh, I tried, I mean, you could probably tell this even last night when I read The Core Desire of a Woman. It just, it took a lot more words for me to capture the core desire of femininity than of masculinity. And I got kind of frustrated today as I was writing this because it just felt like no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't just... I couldn't make it simpler. I couldn't kind of take, I, I just didn't know what to do. And I was talking with Elisa afterwards about it. And one of the things we started talking about is that even that, I think in some way gets at the difference between men and women. And I don't want to get too specific because again, I think the more specific you can get, it can get a little unhelpful. But I do think there's something there that there's something about masculinity that's very straightforward that is, is a little bit maybe easier to state up front. Even if you look at the differences in how men and women were created, man is created from the dust, God names him Adam. It's pretty straightforward. But then you get to woman and it's super weird. So this is this is the account of how a woman is made. Then the, and also, even if you go and look at the, the creation account, there's one verse that's designated to the creation of Adam, but there's like three or four verses that are designated to the creation of Eve. And this is what it says. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the, that the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. So super weird. I still don't quite understand what's going on in the creation account. And so all of that is to say, I think that there is just something a little bit more mysterious and a little bit more complex about femininity. And that doesn't mean that it's more valuable. That doesn't mean masculinity is less valuable. But I think it's just something to keep in mind as we start talking about it tonight. So I hope that I can bring clarity. Um, but I think there is an element of gender and especially within femininity. So some observations from this account in Genesis. The first thing to notice is that there's a problem. So there's been this pattern of God creates something and then he calls it good. And he creates something and he calls it good. But he actually breaks this pattern when he gets to Adam and Eve. So God creates Adam, but then instead of saying this is good, he says it's not good that man should be alone. And what's cool about this is that this is pre-fall. So this is before sin has entered the world. This is while the world is still all right and good, except it's not right and good because man is alone. 
but God gives him a solution, and the solution that he gives him is he gives him a woman. And the word that's translated into English is the word helper. And what's crazy about this is I think that in our 21st century English, when we hear helper, we, we tend to think of maybe like a servant or like, oh, like mom's little helper. Like that's what you call like a little girl who's trying to help her mom. The word helper actually, whenever else it's used in the Bible, is used to describe God and the ways that he would help the Israelite army defeat their enemies. So this is not like, this is not a, a servant. This is kind of like a co-warrior. So what, what God is saying is that I'm going to give Adam a, a helper, someone who's going to come along, be a strong advocate. So another place, I mean, it's used a lot in the Bible, but Deuteronomy 33:29 says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. And the phrase, the shield of your help, that's the same word that's used in the creation account. So, so that's just another observation about Eve. So another interesting thing is, if you look at even how they're named, so Adam is created from the dirt, and he's named in relation to the dirt versus Eve, Eve is created out of Adam and she's named in relation to Adam. And I think that has some significance. God could have done whatever he wanted when he set up the world. He could have created Eve out of the dust. That's, that's what he did with Adam. It probably would save some time, but he purposely chooses to create Eve out of Adam. And Adam responds to that by naming Eve in relation to himself. And I think that is significant Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't really give us a very explicit explanation. And so that's what Zach and I were getting at last night when we say the things that we want to tell you guys, the things we want to share with you, these are things that we are inferring from scripture, from counselors, from authors who have done a ton of research, from our own experience. So I do just want to make that clarification again that the Bible doesn't really give us an explicit explanation for why there are these differences. But this is what, this is what I think is going on. So Zach talked last night that God's intended purpose for men has to do with meaningful work. And I would say that God's intended purpose for women is about meaningful relationships. And I'm getting that from three different things. One is the creation account and the differences in how Eve was created. The second is the unique curse that's given to Eve. And then the third are just the unique exhortations that are given to men and women in the New Testament. So I have my best attempt at a pithy statement, and that is this. So God's intended purpose for femininity is relationship. That she would invite others to see and delight in the beauty in herself, the world, and ultimately God. So there's, there's two parts to this definition. There's an invitation, and then there's also beauty. So it's kind of like a twofold. And one of the places that you can see this, actually even in Genesis, is that when Adam sees Eve, he responds with poetry. Yes, oh, sorry. <laughs> Thanks for that hand.
So if we, what we're saying is that masculinity reveals something about God, femininity reveals something about God. So I think that femininity reveals a God who is relational in nature. That God invites us to see and delight in him and the world that he has made. This is another quote from Larry Crabb. He says, invitational power is alive in the soul of every woman who knows Jesus. She has a power to reveal the relational nature of God that no man can reveal as clear. And I've talked about my sisters, I talked about them in my last talk, and I'm gonna show a video of them at the very end of this talk so you can get excited about that. And one thing that's really interesting is I showed it to Elisa and Brianna before this talk, and Elisa commented that, so my sisters are 12 and nine, and if, if I had filmed my brothers when they were at that age, I asked them a question. I asked them, what's your favorite thing about each other? And I think that if my brothers had answered that question, it probably would have been something pretty relating to their physical abilities. Like, oh, he's a really good runner, or like, I really like swimming with him. It would be more like, what are we doing together that I really like? What's interesting is, and you'll hear this, but my sister's answers kind of gets at how each of them relates to other people, which is really crazy because my sisters are really young and I didn't like tell them, I didn't say like, hey, did you guys know that your nature is to be relational? Like they're just answering out of the ways that they've been made. And so I think, I think the more that you think about these things, the more you'll start to see it crop up. So I'm, I'm excited for you guys to see this video. So if, if that's what God's intended purpose for femininity is, then I think that the core desire of a woman is that she would be, I'll say this slowly, the core desire of a woman is that she would be delighted in as beautiful by those she has invited in. So I'll say that again. The core desire of a woman is to be delighted in as beautiful by those she has invited in to know her. So if, if women are primarily relational, if that's God's intended purpose for them, what happened at the fall? And this is when things get a little bit dark. So there's a unique curse on femininity. God curses men, and then he curses women. And in Genesis 3.16, we get the curse on women. And he says, to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So God curses femininity at its most glorious point which is its relationships. And he, the curse is threefold. So he curses her childbearing. He says it's going to be painful. He curses her marriage. He says that she's going to be ruled over by her husband. And ultimately, there's this curse that her desire for a relationship is going to be unfulfilled. Her desire is going to be too great for her husband. God's intended curse for women is relational. I have a slide for this is relational disappointment, leaving women feeling unseen and unwanted. Now this has an effect on women that we're still feeling today. If men are asking the question, do I have what it takes? Then I think women are asking the question, am I wanted? 
And I can see this actually even in Zach and my friendship. So last week, Zach and I met to start working on these two talks. And we were talking about these things, and Zach said, you know, I, I feel like my desire for project is that it would go well. My desire is that I would do a good job of leading project. And because we haven't had any huge issues, project hasn't burned down, everyone seems to be in relatively good health, I, 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 that desire is being fulfilled, and, and I feel like I'm doing a good job, and I feel happy, I feel secure. And as he was talking, I really did identify with that. Like, I also have a desire that project would go well. I also desire that there would, this summer would have a lasting impact on everyone in this room. I, I have that desire. But what I realize is that what keeps me up at night is not this kind of haunting question of, oh, is, is what I say on project going to last? Are people going to remember what I do? What keeps me up on project is, how are people going to respond to me? As I'm, as I'm sharing, as I'm opening myself up, what, are, what do you think of me? And there are ways that that can get into vanity and unhelpfulness, but I, I think that there's something really feminine about that question. And what was funny is I felt like I was in a pretty good mood. Zach and I had been joking. And all of a sudden, I felt this wave of emotion rise up in me. And I started crying in Tropical Smoothie, um, which was a little bit awkward. <laughs> Because what I realized is that there is a deep pain in femininity that as I let myself be known by you, so as I give talks, as I share my thoughts with this room, as I lead project, as I get to know you, as I, as I share my story, what's happening is I'm letting you in more and more into my heart. I'm letting you in more and more into my life. And what keeps me up at night is this fear of what if they don't like what they see? What if, what if there's a sense that I'm not enough? There's a deep longing in my heart that as I open up, that as I let you get to know me, that there would be a response that I'm, I'm good, that I'm someone worth knowing, that you see something beautiful in me. And it feels kind of icky to say that because it's, it sounds so similar to vanity, and I think it easily can become vanity. But there's something deeply feminine about this desire that as you open yourself up that people would move in and respond. And I see a lot of women in the audience <laughs> nodding along with me and tearing up. And I don't think that this is just my experience. My guess is that most of the women in this room, and probably some of the guys too, maybe most of the guys, feel this, that there is this deep ache that as you let people in, there's this haunting question of, do you like what you see? And the effect of the curse on us is that we're no longer sure if there's anything about us that's worth showing the people in our lives. This is just a guess, but I think I'm right. My guess is that no woman in this room woke up this morning thinking, I'm beautiful. My guess is that every single woman in this room woke up this morning hating something about themselves. And that breaks my heart because that's, I mean, that's how I think of myself. But what's crazy is when I look out on this room, it's so evident that women are beautiful, that God has made women so beautiful, that each individual woman in this room is created by God and shows such a beautiful picture of his glory and of what he's like. But the effect of the curse is that we spend our entire lives thinking there's nothing in me that's worth someone getting to know.
at some point, every woman comes face to face with the reality that the relationships in her life do not fulfill her the way that she wants, and that loneliness is an inevitable part of her existence on this earth. So for men, it's the fear of futility, the sense that the realization that nothing you do in the end will last, that everything will perish. And for women, that moment of realization comes when you realize that when you finally start dating the guy that you've been wanting to date, the loneliness is still there. And when you finally marry the guy that you've been dating that you want to marry, the loneliness is still there. And that when you have children, the loneliness is still there. It's this realization that loneliness is a part of your existence. So the core desire of a woman has now become her core terror. And her core terror is that she will invite with no response. And this leads women to one of two things, either thinking that I'm invisible, so I'm not worth you seeing me, or it leads you to think I'm too much, that if you did see me, you'd be overwhelmed and you would be out the door. So the core terror of a woman is that she will invite and that there will be no response. So the effect of the curse is that women can no longer confidently, freely, and warmly invite people into relationship because we're afraid that no one will show up or that when they do show up, they will hurt us. And there are legitimate reasons why some of the women in this room feel this way. I have watched close, close friends have their lives be completely destroyed by sexual abuse that has happened to them. And my guess is, is that, well actually, I think I'm, I'm gonna do this. So, if you are a woman in this room and you have ever been sexually abused, or if you've ever been objectified, if you've ever been catcalled, if you've ever, um, been verbally abused, if you've ever been made to feel uncomfortable, whether that was at work or at school or walking to your car late at night, if you've ever as a woman felt like in any way, shape or form, you were objectified or you got attention that you didn't ask for, can you raise your hand? So guys, just look around because I think every woman's hand is raised right now. Okay, you can put your hands down, thanks. And the horrifying thing about this is that what happens when this happens over and over and over, what women start to believe about themselves is that I must have in some way invited this attention. And that's why shame is so closely attached to abuse because what Satan tells you, what, your curse, what the curse tells you is that you received that unwanted attention, you received that hurt because there was something in you that deserved it. There was something in you that invited it and that's why it happened to you. This world is really, really broken. And femininity has not escaped that. So there's ways that we as women cope with the brokenness in the world. And there's so many ways, but I distilled it into three. I think we hide, we control, or we absorb. So one of the ways that women cope is that we hide. So you never open yourself up to people. You just, you don't even go there. You don't let people in to see you. You don't, you're not vulnerable with the people in your life. 
you don't ever risk a relationship, you play it safe and you never let people know who you are. The second way that we as women cope is that we control or we manipulate. So you don't wait for people to come to you because you force them to come to you. You put yourself in situations where there's zero risk because you know exactly what that person's gonna do. They're gonna come. And the funny thing is, is that I think we tend to put those on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Like, you think about controlling, manipulating, and then you think of a woman who hides. And those can sound like they're opposites, but the heart of them is the same. The heart is this belief that there's nothing in me that would be worth me inviting you into. So one just doesn't even invite, and one forces people to come. And then the last way that we cope is that we absorb, which means we absorb the shame and the disappointment into ourselves. And this can look like an eating disorder, this can look like anxiety, this can look like depression, it can take on a variety of forms, it can look like binge eating. I think there's so many ways that we as women take the shame and disappointment of I'm not wanted and we pull it into ourselves and we destroy ourselves. But there's hope, praise God. This is from Romans 8, verses 19 through 20, and this is what he says. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So now we're moving into redemption. And this is the glorious truth that we were, we, were, we were subjected in hope. That when God put the curse on men, when God put the curse on women, he knew, he knew that one day he would come and take on flesh and that he would step into the curse for us and bear it. So last night, Zach walked us through how Jesus took on the curse of futility, that he embraced his futility, he walked towards the cross, and ultimately triumphed over it. And I want us to think for just a second, what if Jesus not only embraced our futility, but he also embraced our rejection? So if you have a Bible, I don't have this on the screen because it's a longer passage, but if you want to open up to Isaiah 53. This is a prophecy of the suffering servant. And this prophecy was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is such a rich, rich passage. There's so much here. For tonight, I want us to read this specifically with the lens of what does this have to say about femininity? So I'm going to read verses 2 through 5 and then 10 through 11. And I just want you to be listening with ears towards what is the core fear of women and what does it mean that Jesus took on that fear? Actually, I'll just start in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And what's so beautiful about what Jesus did is he took on the curse of woman. He took on, he took on even in a weird way, the pain of childbirth. That's the very first thing that God curses in the garden. And in verse 10, it refers to he shall see his offspring. And then in verse 11, he says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about the cross as where God was able to bring us in as children of God. And so there's a way that Jesus has even based the curse on childbirth for women, which is just kind of cool to think about. But there's other ways. So he's been ruled by someone else. So if you think, so we now know, reading it now, that this prophecy refers to Jesus on the cross. So he was ruled by someone else. So if you think about this, Jesus went to the cross because he submitted himself to the rulers and authorities of that time. He was was sacrificed, he was tried in a court that he had authority over, and that decision was made by the Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities. He was, I mean, ultimately he was put on the cross because he allowed himself to be put on the cross, but there is a sense that he was ruled by someone else the day that he went to the cross. And ultimately, he was relationally abandoned. This is what Jesus cries out from the cross. This is Mark 15, 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus was not seen. He was despised. He was rejected. Men turned their face from him. So if you, as a woman, if if you feel like this describes your experience, there is a really, really real way that Jesus has borne that with you. He, He knows what it is like to have no form or beauty or majesty. He knows what it's like to be despised and rejected. It says that men turn their face from him. Like, that is one of the scariest things that I could think of, is that I would show up somewhere and that people would turn their face away, that they would rather not look at me than even have to deal with me. And Jesus willingly stepped in there. And what hit me last night was, I tend to be a visual learner, and so when I hear the word invitational, what I picture is I picture someone with their arms spread out, inviting people in. It's like, it's the picture of like this house is kind of glowing in the background, and the door opens and someone comes out with their arms wide open, ready to kind of receive you in. So as I've been talking about femininity being invitational, I've always kind of pictured it as arms spread open. And what hit me as Zach was talking last night and describing Jesus on the cross is 
Think about the physical posture that Jesus had while he was on the cross. That Jesus' arms were literally nailed to the cross wide open, inviting the world into relationship with him. And all that he received at that moment was mockery from men and rejection from his father. Why would he do that? Why would he willingly step into the very core terror of a woman? Why would he do that? Because he came to redeem you from your curse. He came to rescue you from your fear and restore you with a relationship with God. He was rejected by God so that you would be forever, forever accepted by God and loved by him. So when you look to the cross, I hope you see a God who is willing to die so that he could invite you in. He was willing to face your core terror so that you would never have to. So how do we respond? If this is, if this is true, if Jesus really has redeemed us from the curse, if he has faced our core terror and made it so that we will never have to, so that we know without a doubt that we will be accepted by God, how do we respond? What do we do? So the first thing I think we're called to do is that, and this is tough, but I'm sorry, <laughs> um, is that as women, we're called to embrace the loneliness and longing that are just part of our nature. It's so easy as women to think that if you could just start dating, or if you could just get married, or if you could just find the perfect job, or if you could just have the best roommates, that then your loneliness would go away. And on this side of heaven, it's just a reality that you will be lonely because you are not living where you are supposed to be. Secondly, we're called to be broken over all of the illegitimate ways that we've tried to escape our loneliness. And I hope that you're thinking, even now, what are some of the ways that I try to escape my loneliness? Because what's happening when you turn to those things, so if it's a relationship, if it's um, losing yourself in love stories, in movies, or in Netflix, or in books, if it's giving yourself over to social media and creating this perfect image, whatever it would be, what you're doing is you're actually robbing yourself of connecting with the Lord because that's why it's sinful. What, what God is asking you to do is God's asking you to recognize your loneliness and embrace it because what your loneliness is telling you is that you're not where you should be. You're not home. You're not with your bridegroom. You're living as an exile here. And your loneliness is supposed to be this ever-present reminder, you're not where you should be. And so when you try to escape it, when you try to short-circuit it, when you, try to, when you try to protect yourself from that loneliness, what you're doing is you're ignoring the reminders that God's sending you. This world is not your home, that he is preparing a place before you, and that he's gone before you to that home. The last thing that we're called to do is we're called to love in the face of loneliness. So the call to men is to love in the face of futility. The call for women is to love in the face of loneliness. And what Jesus has done is he has given you the ability to invite others and display beauty, even if there's no response. 
Because you know that at the end of the day, you will, you are getting a response from your Heavenly Father. Because he, he loves you. He sent his son for you. And one day, you will see him face to face. And it's only when you know that, that you will be able to really invite people in to get to know you. Even if they never respond or delight in you the way that you would long for. So... Christ has redeemed us from the curse. We respond by repenting. And now, as we live in the power of the Spirit, we strive for holy femininity. And we're going to read this passage in a couple of weeks. This is actually taken from 1 Peter. And this is what he says. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And just a side note, um, I actually didn't know this until just a little bit ago, but um, Peter was actually married, which I think is really cool. I tend to think of the apostles as kind of these like stoic old men <laughs> who just kind of live life as bachelors, but Peter was married. So I don't know, I just think that adds kind of a cool underscore to this passage. But I used to kind of rub up against this passage because I, at first glance, what it seems like he's saying is like, women should not care at all about their appearance and they should be really quiet. But I actually have been researching what the words gentle and quiet mean. And um, it doesn't actually mean subservient. That's kind of what it connotates in the English language. What it actually means is that you have a spirit that is at rest. Another word that was used was tranquil. So I looked that up, and it means free from disturbance. And isn't that just a beautiful picture? I think for a lot of women, there's this constant inner dialogue, inner terror that, do these people like me? What do they think of me? Do they think I'm funny? Do they think I'm nice? Do they think I'm beautiful? Do they think I'm athletic? And what this is saying is that in Christ, in God, it is possible to have a spirit that isn't asking those questions anymore. It's possible to have a spirit that is at rest. And I don't think it's wrong to braid your hair. I don't think it's wrong to wear gold jewelry. In fact, I think it's really beautiful. And I think that it actually fits very much in line with femininity because one of the things that women, I think, do really well is women make things beautiful. And I think that glorifies God. So I think it does glorify God to braid your hair, to wear jewelry. But what Peter is saying is that don't let what is outside of you be what defines your beauty. What defines your beauty now is the hidden person in your heart. And, and that is what defines your beauty. And then he says something crazy. He says, it is an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And up to this point, he has only used the words imperishable to talk about our inheritance and the blood of Christ. And now he's using that word to define the beauty of the hidden person in a woman. Like, that is crazy. That is so cool. And so what he's saying is that if you reorder your life, if the Spirit of God comes in you and transforms you and reorders your life so that the beauty is internal, what happens is that it is imperishable and in God's sight is precious. And so women in the room, if you are in Christ, if the Spirit of Christ lives in you, there is something about you, uniquely to women. <laughs> there is something in the heart of every woman that is precious to God. Just think about that. That is pretty exciting.
So just one more point I want to make, and then we're going to get into kind of some more practical stuff. Sometimes when I've heard talks on femininity, um, it's tended to sound pretty passive, like women are waiting, like men are pursuing and women are waiting. And I really don't think that's true. And one of the main reasons why I don't think that's true is because the church is described as a woman. So guys, if you've zoned out this whole talk, this is a point that I especially want you to hear, that when all of the biblical authors talk about the church, which men and women are included in, it describes her as a woman. It describes the church as a bride. And so, men, there's ways that you relate to God as your bridegroom that are maybe a little feminine. And if you look at the work, if you look at how the church is called to act in the world, she's not supposed to be passive. She is waiting. She's waiting for her bridegroom to appear, but she is a woman who is moving towards suffering. She's moving towards evil. She's moving towards battle. She's not just sitting around and waiting. She's moving into the world with the light of Christ and expanding his kingdom until her bridegroom returns. And so I think as women, especially as Christian women who have grown up maybe with some more conservative teaching, Beware of teaching that makes it sound like femininity is just about being the damsel in distress. That is a part of our grand narrative of salvation. The church is a damsel in distress. Men have been, in the grand story of salvation, damsels in distress who have been rescued by God. But femininity is not primarily about being a damsel in distress primarily about moving into the world with life and goodness and taking the kingdom of God with you as you go. And so I could call out specific things and I'm not going to, but beware of teaching that makes it sound like women are passive, that women can't be warriors, because I don't think that's true and I don't think that's biblical. Um, so the last thing I want to say under this point is that the thing I love about the Bible's definition of femininity, which is pretty vague, but it's primarily about the heart. It's not primarily about what you look like or how you dress, which means that femininity can manifest itself in a lot of ways. And so I think some homework for you, if you want it, is to read through Proverbs 31. And I used to think that Proverbs 31 was basically a list of all of the requirements for a godly woman. And so it felt kind of overwhelming to read it. But I think that what Proverbs 31 is actually saying is look at all of the different ways that a godly woman can look. So if you read Proverbs 31, it's crazy. She's like selling real estate, she's dyeing clothing, she's up early making dinner, she's like trading stocks, she's speaking well of her husband, she's raising children. And I just, I love that because it doesn't limit femininity to one box. It basically throws open the doors and says, femininity is primarily about your heart, which means it can look a variety of different ways. So I, um, I have a video of my sisters, and um, again, their names are Lizzie and Sadie. Lizzie is 12, and Sadie's nine. <laughs> and um, I was really curious just what they would say about, I think I just said being a woman, because I don't think they would probably understand the word femininity. Um, I did not prep them at all. I just said, I want to ask you what it means to be a woman. And this will probably come through in the video, but the reason why I was so excited to ask them is because my sisters are super different from each other. Sadie gets mistaken for a boy 99% of the time because she wears exclusively soccer jerseys and soccer shorts. And Lizzie, like, is super artistic. Her favorite thing to do is to design wedding dresses. Like, she could not be more into princesses and fashion than she is currently. 
And so I was really curious like what they would say about each other and what they would say about being women. And I think what they said is kind of profound. So you can play that video. Um, or their appearances, but it's primarily because of their attitudes towards themselves and towards each other. And what I was just blown away with when I asked them, what do you like about each other? I mean, that is profound. Like, what, um, oh, sorry, I hit this clicker. Um, what, what Lizzie is calling out about Sadie is that she's resilient. Like, that's what she's calling out. And what Sadie is calling out about Lizzie is that she is sacrificing, that she is the first one to volunteer for something. And I just think that's such a beautiful picture of femininity, and I, I hope that it's helpful in just kind of bringing the point home that you can be athletic, you can like things that boys like, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> that um, femininity is about your heart towards others and uh, towards the world and towards God. Okay, so we are almost done. So the last point is restoration. So where is, what is, the, where, where is femininity going? So this is my last point. And that is that Christ is coming back for his bride. This is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So that longing in your heart to find that relationship that will finally fulfill you, it's coming. It's coming, and it's coming when Christ comes. And when he comes, he will wipe away every tear from your eye. We will at last see the face of our beloved. And we will at last know fully as we have been fully known. Our deepest desire for a relationship will finally be fulfilled on that day. So I have three quick application points, and then my guess is that hopefully these things will be more fleshed out in the Q&A. But specifically for friendship, what does it mean? What does it mean to embrace your femininity in friendship? And this feels really easy to say, really hard to do, but invite others to get to know you. And this applies to the men in your life and the women in your life. My life, so basically I didn't have guy friends until my senior year in high school because I was homeschooled and I did not know how to talk to guys. And um, really my only context for interacting with a guy was having a crush on him that was so deeply paralyzing that never in a million years would you talk to a guy you had a crush on. Um, and it wasn't until my senior year in high school, which was really sad, that I actually experienced for the first time having friendships with guys where we weren't interested in each other, um, but we just really, really enjoyed each other. And ever since that point, my life has been made so much better by the guy friends that I have in my life. Um, Zach, we are campus directors at the U of M together. Zach has become one of my closest guy friends. And Alexis in here, Harmon, like the guys that are on my staff team with me have become such dear friends. And the guy friendships in my life have made it so much more fun. And so I would say if you are a girl who is really scared of making guy friends, um, embrace your femininity. God has made you to be invitational. He's made you to invite others into relationship. and. Um, I, I'm going to quote Alexis. Hopefully that's okay. I didn't get his permission. But um, <laughs> I think that uh, it's good. It's good. Part of, <laughs> part of femininity is knowing that you have something good to offer. And um, the single staff went to California in January. And we were coming off of a semester where we had lots of conversations about gender. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys were at conference, but Anna Normal gave a talk on gender. And then Anna and Eric gave a talk on friendship. So it was really on our hearts and minds. And... When we first got to California, we were on the pier, and really before we had done anything, Alexis like kind of pulled us all aside. And um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember saying this, but Alexis said, I am so glad that it's just Harvard and me who are the guys on this trip. I am so glad that all of you girls are here because I know that we're gonna have way more fun, we're gonna eat way better food, and this trip <laughs> is gonna be way more enjoyable because there's girls on it. <laughs> and um, that was so healing. I still remember you saying that. And, um, and I think that that gives women, I mean, hopefully women, confidence to move into relationships with guys because without a doubt, you're going to make their lives better by moving into their lives with friendship. So please, please move into their lives with friendship. Okay, this also applies to dating, and I'm not going to be able to say very much. I wish I could say more. But one thing to, I think, recognize is that as a woman, your desire for a relationship is very, very very strong and very deep. And it's easy to think that like, say this is your desire for a relationship, it's easy to think that once you start dating, it's gonna be 
kind of filled all the way up and he'll be good to go. But what I found is that once you start dating, it's actually like the bottom of this falls out from under you and suddenly your desire for a relationship actually goes way deeper than you ever thought. And suddenly you're like way, way more possessive than you ever were before. Um, so that is just something that you need to be aware of and something to watch. And I think an application off of this is that um, if you're wanting to start a relationship, if you're in a relationship, just have people around you. Invite others into knowing what's going on in that relationship. So ask other women in your life to come in and just help you think through this relationship because your tendency is going to be to focus all of your desire onto that one person. And if you do that, what's gonna happen is that that desire is gonna consume them and you're gonna end up more needy, more lonely than you were when you started. And so. The call on all of us women is to take that desire and refocus it on the Lord, on Christ, who, who is enough for you, who can withstand your desire and fulfill it. And then the last application point, and I didn't actually write any notes for this, but I'm just going to kind of go off because this is actually really important to me. The last application is in singleness. And I might get a little emotional because I think that singleness is one of the most beautiful and painful spaces to experience femininity and it is beautiful because you get to experience the ways that God sees you and delights in you you are forced to cling to those truths like never before but for all of the single women in the room there is something that is deeply painful about being single and I think that the reason why is because what's happening is there is a sense that even if you're not really trying to, you are inviting the people around you to come and know you and to come and delight in you. And so the longer that you're single, the longer it can feel like there is just this general rejection from everyone around you. And I think that if you are currently single, it is such, I think that one of the most beautiful things in the world is seeing women who long to be in relationships, who long to meet the man who will love them and pursue them all the way to marriage. It is one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever seen to watch women who long for that daily surrender to the Lord and trust that for this day, he will be enough for them. And it is so painful at times. There have been days <laughs> this year that um, it's almost been hard for me to even get out of bed because I feel so crushed by the rejection of being single. And so what I would say is if you feel like you're in that place, if you feel like you have been waiting, and you have done this, you've invited guys into friendship, you have, you have done these things, you have invited, and there has been no response, what I would say to you is cling to Jesus and, and rest in his open arms. And, and if it feels too much, it, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to sometimes take a step back, but you have to keep inviting because only in that space, only in the space where you let the world in to know you, that's where you're going to meet Jesus the most is in that space. <clears throat>